Vivian Krause without Jason Kenney, without Stephen Harper, without uh, what appears to have been a completely orchestrated campaign back in 2012 to start the CRA auditing process, these hearings that she would go and appear to, without them and without post media and without talk radio, Vivian Krause would be a blogger. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash Forgotten Corner Pod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Back to the Forgotten Corner podcast. We are proud members of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out other podcasts like ours by visiting the website that we will include in our show notes. My name is Scott Schmidt, your co-host. I'm here alongside good friend and co-host Jeremy Appel. Jeremy, hello. How's it going, buddy? Not too bad. Just uh, taking a social media cleanse this weekend. Oh, really? Uh, You're not on there, or what? Yeah, just uh, well, I, I I did have to log on to Facebook to to message you guys, but uh, right. taking a break from like yelling at pro-Israel people on Twitter. So oh yeah, that, yeah, that, that's good for my uh, mental health. Did you see what the? Oh, we won't. I won't. I won't. You ask you about it. There's some senator uh, controversy, Linda. It, oh yeah, David Frum's sister. Yes. Yeah. Yes. How, how did Barbara Frum spawn two devils? Wow. Okay. Well, we're starting off with a bang, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. We can maybe get her on and ask her. Um, But uh, I don't really have much to report to you this week anyways, either. So uh, it's good. How are things at the news? They're actually really like smooth and nice right now. We've got like a number of reporters, which is like not a thing lately. So that's actually really good. And some yeah, new people. And I, I've been seeing some new bylines. Yeah, bylines. like people that have, uh, you know, gone to journalism school and uh, have some interest in doing the job properly. So it's really nice to have them around. I like it. Yeah, it's been good. Brian's, you know, yeah. Do you have a publisher yet? No. Well, we have like a group publisher, but we don't have the associate in the building publisher anymore. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We, we like trade it off. Like we, I do Mondays, Ryan does Tuesdays, Colin does Wednesdays. I'm making As that publisher? up. Yeah, no, I'm making that up. But nobody, no, nobody in the world in that, nobody in that building is going to ask me to be in charge of anything. Yeah. But, I was going to say, if you're the publisher of Medicine Hat News, even one day a week, that would, uh, cause some uh some controversy i would say be a fun day though it'd be a fun cool yeah Yeah, absolutely send your letters anyways i think we should get today's guest because we've got a hundred like a million things we'd love to talk about um but uh we'll see if we can get to the the big ones before we're done uh we are extremely excited to welcome sandy garasino to the show this week sandy is a former crown prosecutor turned award-winning columnist who now writes regularly for the national observer She's become very well known for her extensive research and writing on the country's energy industry. She's offered eye-opening analysis on some of the nation's highest profile legal cases. She broke the Mike Duffy redacted diary story and has sat down with Prime Minister Trudeau to talk pipelines. 
Today, Sandy will join us to offer our listeners some insight into who she is, what motivates her, and why her passion lies where it does. We're going to talk a little legalese, a little bit of energy, and hopefully a lot about the four-time extended anti-Alberta inquiry. Sandy, thank you, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to the Forgotten Corner. Thanks for having me on, guys. We have, uh, I think, like... I can't think of a guest where we've had more things that we'd love to talk about, but uh, one of our favorite things to do on this show is to get to know our guest and who they are as a person. And uh, so before we rack your brain on about all things energy inquiries, we'd like to hear kind of like the Sandy Garasino life synopsis, because you've kind of done it all, right? Like uh, you've, you uh, had a good career as a lawyer, and then all of a sudden now you've kind of ventured into the world of journalism and have your kind of your words on a lot of different subjects and uh so give us give us the story where are you from originally i'm from Carstairs, alberta originally well actually i was born in vancouver but for all intents and purposes grew up in Carstairs, alberta Carstairs, no kidding so did you like out the didsbury yeah <laughs> at all <laughs> that's awesome yeah so uh that was pre pre-gigantic malls lying around in places like balzac and stuff like that so what did you do that's in car stairs back in the day i went to school every day i was i went to school back in the day when girls could not uh wear pants to school until it was uh 12 below zero fahrenheit which as you know is very very cold are you kidding? Like it had, it had to be to well below dresses. freezing. It had to be well below freezing before we were allowed to wear pants to school. Oh my goodness. Like that's uh I otherwise mean, dresses. You're, you're really dating yourself there. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I, I didn't want to say sorry that, about that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so uh what was childhood like? Like what were what was your what, what did your parents do? It was it was it was fun. My my dad worked at the home oil gas plant and my stepfather. And my mom was a teacher and it was fun. And, and I loved, I loved my life there. It was, it was great. Um, what can I say? It was, it was just a regular small town, Alberta childhood. And so was it straight, like after high school, you're like, you knew right away, I want to be a lawyer and this is what I'm going to do. Like, give us the transition of what um, life like. Well, you know, in small towns, this is kind of the, what I think of as kind of a tragedy of small town life, which is that as soon as you're out of high school, you're kind of either you're going to stay and get a job as a bank teller or in the pizza joint or you, or you have to go. I left home and because I, we had family in uh, Vancouver, I came to Vancouver uh, to uh, go to university. Um, there weren't actually very many means to put me through university. Um, uh, and so I had to put myself through seven years of university. And um, I, I just got interested in the law and, and, uh, and, and just, just followed, that, followed that path. At the same time, I kind of reunited with my natural father who was in, who was in Vancouver and he owned uh, a couple of fleets of taxi companies. And uh, so, so we had some, a few years there. And then after law school, I joined the Crown um, and really got a, a phenomenal introduction to uh, the whole world of trials, of, of criminal trials, trials in general, and all that sort of thing. And, and then after a few years, my father died suddenly and my brother and I had to take over 
his taxi companies. And I always like to just tell this story because it, it, it has some bearing on how I look at a lot of a lot of things, and in particular the uh, the um, um, anti-oil inquiry, um, which is that I thought after several years of being a trial lawyer and a crown prosecutor that I understood the law, and I did not understand the law until my brother and I were operating the companies, and there was. Um, Kind of an existential lawsuit that went on for 11 years and i did not understand the law until i personally had to write hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal checks to defend uh, my father's life's work and that is when i learned what the legal system is really about so that that really informed me about a lot of things and and that's sort of a a theme that underlines uh, underlies a lot of what I do as a journalist. Anyway, we ran the we ran the um, companies for a while, and then um, neither one of us was really cut out to be taxi owners, taxi company owners. So we sold them, and and um, um, I've just sort of I I kind of lateral moved out of interest into, into writing and journalism. That just kind of, that was kind of an accidental thing that happened. So I just started to write about things that really interested me. Things like the Omar Cotter case and that sort of thing. And then along came Vivian Krause. <laughs> Have you ever driven a taxi? No, that's a good question. No, I haven't. So maybe I'm, I'm, you guys would have understood the business more if you got in there and did the yeah, work. Yeah, maybe. Well, <laughs> we understood the, um, we were, our company was the first in Canada to have, to employ, you remember, you guys won't remember this. You're probably too young, but it, there used to be like radio dispatch. We used to have dispatchers. So I've, I've you know, I've run I'm, the dispatch. I, I'm, yeah, I'm totally too young to remember that. Are you serious? Are you no, serious? No, I'm not. I'm old. These guys are too young. I'm to too young to remember that. <laughs> I'm a little and older than that. So it used to be all radio dispatch. And then along came, so because we weren't long in the tooth, old school taxi people who were all came up through having driven taxis. That's how my dad acquired his taxis. He started out driving. Um, and... Uh, um, but we were the first to bring mobile data, um, trans mobile data information, which we now know as the modern cell phone. That was the very beginning of it. Was police and taxi companies started to um, beta test the technology. Totally. And, and uh, just before we get into sort of, I guess, the meat of our discussion, yeah. um, I, I'm wondering what, what made you decide to become a prosecutor? Um, well, when I got out of law school, there were no jobs. Like 45% of my law school class did not get work out of law school because of it, it was the recession in the 80s. But I was also really interested. I had, I had volunteered public defender work. I was really interested in it. Um, and I think a lot of people are drawn to the crown work. You know, I look at people like Kamala Harris. Uh, I think a lot of people are drawn to the prosecutor's role um, out of concern for the public, really public safety and, 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 and helping people who are victims of crime. 
So you get interested in that, and then you start to see, you know, the broader implications, the bigger picture. Were there any cases that you um, tried that were like pretty that stick out in your mind or highlight that were kind of like uh, you know interesting stories you could tell us? Hmm. hmm. Who's the um, person you're most proud of locking up? <laughs> I didn't want to say it like that, but yeah, sure. Guy who's dead now, um, uh, um, a, an organized crime figure by the name of Hai Hang, who um, victimized teenage girls and uh, lured them into prostitution and drug uh, abuse. And there was a young girl that it always stays with me. She, she was an incredibly brave witness um, who went through years of uh, different trials relating to that guy. She, she was a, a minor at the time and um, he got, we, we put him away. And I was very proud to have been part of that. And um, I wish I hadn't seen some of the misogynistic um, approaches to that particular young woman uh, that, that were really evident at the time. So when you, you, you said after um, you, got to a point where you kind of where you really learned about the legal system and are you was that basically saying that like it turned your faith on it like did you uh did you lose faith in what you were doing that made you want to walk away from it no no it really did come from um you know my my father's sudden sudden death um that i had to i had to leave and i had to go and take care of of this other business. Um, I don't know that I would say that I'm, I mean, I guess I am disillusioned in the sense that I don't have um, a lot of illusions, but I still have a lot of hope and I have a lot of belief. And I point to that organized crime case. Um, there's a lot that the criminal justice system is capable of and should be doing. You know, I look at white collar crime and how much easier I see much more now how the criminal justice system and all of the mechanisms, policing and, and all of it is, is really about controlling largely poor and disenfranchised people. Um, and, I'm, and I look, for instance, right now as we're talking, is this terrible case out of Kamloops and how of the, of the children um, the grave, the, the grave site, a school with a graveyard with hundreds of graves in it, and and how these stories were silenced systemically for over a hundred for all of our Canadian history, and how we institutionally we have protected the wealthy and those who are able to get you know those costly excellent lawyers who can who can get you off, or they're not even ever really prosecuted or we don't do enough um uh you know it's the cra doesn't do sufficient auditing because it's all too hard and expensive policing work and it requires uh expertise and money and resources it's just way more easy to go after and pick on people in the downtown east side of vancouver the, the passion for what you're doing is really there i guess i'm just wondering like when you've got out of taxi cabs why not go back into law um 
I guess I felt like I had done what I wanted to do in the law and it had given me what I what, what I want. I actually think legal training is phenomenal training. And I also believe that crown work is phenomenal trial preparation. You learn more as a trial lawyer in crown work than anywhere else, I think, uh, just because you're in court all day, every day, and no other, no other legal world does that. But, you know, the world is a big place and there are other ways to make a contribution. Yeah, I can see the the logical sort of leap from doing legal work and realizing all these holes in the system and then going into journalism where you can sort of expose um, mm-hmm. where these fault lines are. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's where a lot of a lot of my work came. You know, I I I look at for instance the Omar Cotter case or I look at the uh, the John Furlong case the the uh, um, Canadian Olympic, um, um, the head of the Canadian Olympic Committee, uh, who was accused by Indigenous people, and how institutionally we dealt with that. It, it's just, it's a lot clearer when you have experience it within the system to analyze it that way. You um, have probably written about this case more than anyone except for uh, Michelle Shepard at the Toronto Star, who I believe wrote a book about it. Um, so tell, because like when I talk to people, like when, when Omar Cotter comes up, people like my parents, they're just like, oh, he got $10 million from taxpayers. And I think there's like a lot of, uh, resentment towards him for that, which I'm sure has nothing at all to do with his, uh, shade, um, manufactured resentment. Yeah, but so, I mean, like, but, and you exposed how he didn't, he probably didn't even do what he's being accused of doing, right? Like, if he did do that, he's a child soldier and mm-hmm. should be treated as such, but mm-hmm. you, you exposed that there, there's really no evidence that he... um I think the, the, evidence, the evidence actually is to the contrary. The evidence, when you look at it, uh, exonerates him in the sense that it, it, it in, first of all, I did a lot of youth prosecutions when I, was, when I was doing this work. And there is absolutely no way in Canada that charges would even be approved based on the facts that, that we had. Um, and that we knew, and Canada failed completely to stand up for this kid and to get him out of Guantanamo. Um, but having said, having said that, there's, there's more. Um, I always felt, as I watched the whole story unfold, and I didn't speak up at the time, and again, this is all part of how we get in kind of intimidated into silence, especially when there's a huge emotional storm going on about a circumstance as, where, as there was with the, um, because of the terror, terrorism aspect to it all. Um, but Omar Cotter, uh, clear, the, the photographic evidence that was present, that was taken immediately when the American military breached um, the barricades of that compound and entered and the photograph, the, 
photographers were there documenting everything at the time. And the photographic evidence that was concurrent was taken within seconds of them entering the compound. And before he was even discovered, uh, it's clear that he was lying under rubble of a collapsed wall. Uh, so the story that was given, the testimony that was given that was the basis of his so-called, his plea uh, and, and the, the trial, uh, the civil trial against him, um, the default judgment that was taken against him for over $100 million by, by the widow of the medic, that testimony is completely contradicted by the photographic evidence. It's obvious that, that the testimony is false and no witness actually saw him shoot or throw, throw, the, throw the grenade that killed the medic. No witness saw that. They just saw a lot of fire and ruckus. And they, um, one witness said that, based, that he saw the grenade and based on where the grenade came from, he figured it must have been Cotter. But nobody saw that. And actually the photographic evidence shows that at the time the grenade was, was thrown, Omar Cotter was lying face down, probably unconscious under a collapsed wall. So you tell me how he threw that grenade. I don't think it happened. Well, and yeah. I can already hear like the Michelle Rempels of the world being like, he pled guilty, right? But I mean, as if as if no one's ever uh, pled guilty in Guantanamo Bay yeah. to get out of being tortured. That was the only way out. And I can right. tell you right now, Michelle Rempel would have pled guilty to get out of Guantanamo 100%. There isn't anybody listening to this that wouldn't have pled guilty to get out of Guantanamo Bay after spending seven years in there. And he was, he was a teenager when he went in. The whole thing was just an and absolute it, miscarriage of justice. We kind of glossed over, but you said it at the beginning, like he, he, that was his condition, right? Like he couldn't come home. Yes, that was the condition of release to this crime. Like he, that, that was, was the a... only way he could get to a Canadian prison and out of like, that's how bad it is in Guantanamo Bay. That Canadian prison is like a sandals resort. They still have the people he was imprisoned with who did not plead guilty or whose countries did not assist them in getting out are still there. They still have not been tried. It's been 20 years and they are still there and that's where he would be right now rotting in that prison if he didn't plead guilty remember in 2008 when obama was going to close it down yeah i do remember yeah yeah I so much remember. for How i was uh, actually i yeah 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 it's a that's a really sad one because the narrative from all media is that he's a terrorist and not like, all media okay well not I'm not sorry. the star in the observer but like correct obviously we're talking to the media that broke it the other way so i apologize for that but uh, the bulk of the media the lying is, fake news media we're talking is is that this is it's kind of like i mean we talked about this last week but it's kind of like the israel palestine thing right like israel is just defending itself at all times we're just always defending ourselves no matter yeah, what evidence well, be damned and like you know with omar cotter like it's been per reported several times by you yourself that all of this that went down is worse than shady. It's, it's gotta be false. 
And yet here we are. Does that change the public's opinion? I mean, the public opinion on Omar Khadr cannot be very good. Um, I, I, I'm sure it isn't, but I also feel like time has kind of done some work on it, but it's, it's, it's still, it stays with me just because, you know, you only have to look at cases like Kyle Rittenhouse, um, the young kid during the Black Lives Matter who crossed state lines with assault rifles or with a rifle um, and killed, was it two people? Um, in cold blood at a demonstration. And he's out, I believe he's out on bail right now and goodness knows what will ever happen there. And he's being completely defended by all the very same kind of, of interests that think that Omar Cotter should be rotting in prison for the rest of his life. So double standard. And what last question about Cotter, because we've got tons of other things to talk about. Yeah. Is, what, what, what do you make of the payout? Like, do you, like, because I mean, $10 million is a lot of money. It's more money than I'm ever going to see. But he did suffer greatly. And obviously, some form of compensation uh, needed to be given to him. But how sort of, I guess, how, 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 how do they arrive at, 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 these sorts of uh, dollar amounts for oh that's that's a good question and I and I don't know the answer to it. What I would say, um, because I have a little bit of insight in it into it, is first of all he will have to pay legal fees out of that amount. Uh, secondly, he will have to pay for years, possibly lifelong um, therapy, counseling, goodness knows what else. He will have had to pay security costs. Um, and I know just a little bit about what, um, what necessary security can entail. Um, and so what's left of this windfall to him, um, I don't think would be, you couldn't pay me $10 million to go and spend, um, to go through what he went through and to spend all those years in Guantanamo Bay, a lot of it under conditions that have been regarded as torture. And he was tortured in my opinion. Well, I'm not sure where he's living right now, but I imagine that it's he's- Edmonton, I think. Yeah, so I imagine he he's not going- National Post. Right, he's, he, he can't, it's not like he's living a life of, of luxury just because he has this money. Like he still is gonna face this for the rest of his life based on the narrative that we were talking about. I mean, there is going to, if people recognize him, which I'm sure a lot of the idiots that would say nasty things about him would never recognize him anyway. So that's helpful. But I, I'm, I'm guessing he's going to face racist action and, and talk over this for the rest of his life. Not to mention the trauma. Just think what he went through. And, you know, I think that he was abandoned by every single adult that had responsibility to take care of him, including his own parents. Um, he was abandoned by his country, he was abandoned by everyone and, and tortured as a child and left to rot. And I think the trauma of that on a young teenage boy will last for all his days. Like, is it just straight up scapegoat systemic racist racism because the we talked about this payout and we really do got to move on, but we talked about the payout of 10 million bucks. Well, two or three different governments combined to pay about $110 million trying to beat him in court to avoid paying a payout and lost, kept losing. And so we paid 10, 11 times more than that anyways, trying to get out of paying that money. And like the, can like, 
what does that speak? How much systemic racism does that speak to that the country is willing to pour like it's money is no object when it comes to trying to defeat him. And then all of a sudden, once it's $10 million to him, it's this unbelievable amount of money. And how could we, how could we pay that? Apparently we want to pay way more money to the lawyers. Right. I guess so. Right. So speaking yeah. of these kinds of things, we want to move on to, we want to talk about the, the anti-Alberta inquiry because um, you've been uh, obviously talking about that a little bit lately because a, um, I guess the way I look at it is uh a uh, unspoken code of silence was maybe broken and uh, you've been telling a little bit more about what's been going on than you start. I, I want to kind of move back to in the beginning to what got you interested in, in, in the first place, because you met with these guys in 2019 um, to talk about your research. What, what made you want to do that research in the first place? Well, I've actually been watching this long before I was ever even um, doing any kind of serious journalism. I was watching this story start to right from its very beginnings. Um, and I was very concerned. I'm not really part of the environmental community or really even the activist community. Um, but I care an enormous amount about um, people's freedoms to dissent and to express themselves freely um, and unguardedly in the public realm. Um, and in particular, I'm concerned, and I, because I had been involved with a number of boards and sometimes on controversial issues, I was very concerned about the suggestion that charities, that it is improper uh, um, uh, and illegitimate for charities to express views about important public matters of public concern. And immediately, as soon as this narrative started to appear back in 2000, when I first became aware of it, 2009, 2010, because at that time it was around generally around fish farming, um, I was very concerned that this was going to bloom into an attack on the civil liberties, especially of the charitable and nonprofit movement. And I was concerned about their ability to mount a really uh, vocal and effective defense to it. Well, and you said you said fish farming, right? Like, who's the common name between these two uh, scandals, right? Like, that's where Vivian Cross became famous in the first place. And isn't I don't know much about her whole fish farming thing, but from what I hear, it's essentially the exact same argument, just a mad lib of remove fish farming and add in Alberta oil industry. Yeah, it's it was it was it's just a it's it's just a substitution. I mean, um, she began to attack uh, foundations that were funding research into the North Pacific salmon. Um, because she was working at the time for fish farm operation. And, uh, and so it was exactly the same narrative. Uh, she was more explicit at that time about attributing uh, US foundation work on the North Pacific to an attempt to support Alaska and Washington, uh, Washington state fishing industry. She she pretty much she at that point it was uh, it was there was this conspiracy element to it um, quite overtly stated as the and it became the same narrative for the for oil and gas. 
Have you ever met Vivian Curtis? Yes. What was she like? Um, I've met her twice. She was on a panel that I was on very early on around maybe 2011 um, on CKNW radio. Uh, and then I had lunch with her. And um, I mean, she's very much what you what you see in the in the media. Um, although she had not yet really kind of become as polished as she later was. But in the lunch that we had, I was actually taken aback because she was starting to, I got the impression, the clear impression that she felt that the climate change narrative itself was part of this larger plot uh, against oil and gas. The, the transnational progressive movement. That that what that yes and global globalization globalism and all of that sort of thing, that was my impression um, of of that of that lunch. That was well, what I came away with. Uh, what did you eat? What did you have for lunch? <laughs> Sorry, I, I I just you know asked. Oh, no, he, I love it. I I don't I can't remember. Was it salmon? It might have been. <laughs> It might have been probably shrimp. <laughs> um, you ever, well, you ever read like uh, lunch with uh, FT, Financial Times, and they, yes. <laughs> they, they have like all what, of that. What they ate. It's making me think of how much Rick Bell and Rachel Notley with gravy. Oh, yeah, the veal color. gravy. But anyway, yeah. um, so this week, and we're, we'll bounce around a little bit. Well, now that we're on the subject of Vivian Crows. Um, this last couple of weeks has been a lot of, um, her saying that she didn't say certain things and, uh, what do you make of, um, this sort of spin she's trying to put on former words and accusations of the media for, um, basically printing fake news as if we don't have former access to former tweets? Well, it's, it's, it's been fascinating to watch it because, um, she's, she's right, at least in more recent years, at least from around 2013 to 2014, the narrative did start to shift where there would always be this qualifier of, you know, well, the real purpose, you know, people really do intend to save the planet and it's important to save the planet and we do have to have climate action that kind of started to enter. But these were always qualifiers to um, a more, and Andrew Leach has written about this, where he, he's, he's pointing to the ways that the narrative primes the listener or the reader to believe that there's something, uh, that there are ulterior motives, that there's some other game afoot, and that there's something else going on, and the natural um, takeaway that the average listener and reader will have is that there is a conspiracy of some kind but she has always and she is it's right when she's saying oh but I did say these other things that is true but that's not what people heard and read what they heard was there's a conspiracy, this is going to help the US oil industry, this is about controlling. And look at, her, what's the name of her film? Over a Barrel. What does that tell you? Right. 
that's an expression right. that talks about how someone has manipulated you and you're powerless you are in their clutches well i read that andrew andrew leach piece actually just yesterday and uh it's it's right because like in some sense it's human nature to sort of pick different things that you hear and draw a conclusion but he's right he, he did make a point of mentioning that she knows the conclusions that you're going to draw from what she says so it's not some sort of just accidental uh sort of happenstance from the psychology of humans and that's just the way it works like she understood the psychology of the people that she was talking to and now she's sort of like doing this like well i never actually said that sort of thing which well, is it's the it's the technicality classic. right it's the classic like Jordan Peterson or Sam Harris. Like, no, 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 you're misinterpreting me. That's not, what, That's not I said. what I said. And it's like, no, but that, that is what you said. And it's like, no, you're, you're lying. You're, you're trying to defame me. And it's yeah. like, I don't know if people are constantly misinterpreting what you say, maybe it's on you to uh, communicate clearer. Well, and you I can't think- do that when you're operating on, with dog whistles. Right. Well, it felt like Andrew's point was that like, um you're you can't if you're doing this on purpose it's for an agenda there's a reason why you're doing that in the first place like you're it's not like a like accidental like she knows she knew she knew what she was doing when she did it and so well, it's, and, and every and everybody ev- i mean it couldn't be more obvious what the con- what conclusions the public has drawn the public has clearly drawn the conclusion the very clear conclusion that there is a conspiracy that that uh, environmental NGOs are uh, in bed with the U.S. oil industry in some way. How many times have you heard the word Rockefeller? Even though the Rockefeller Foundation is a very minuscule part of this whole uh, this whole business. Uh, we have heard this over and over again, and we know what the public has taken. So I would think that a conscientious uh, opinion leader would take extra pains to say, no, 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 this is not right. But I actually think that it's more than that. You know, it's very easy to focus on Vivian Krauss, but who is the real offender here? It's the media, and I'm pointing specifically at post-media, um, uh, and its columnist that has amplified and repeated this message, the talk radio industry that repeated this, how many hundreds, if not thousands of times has this message been the subject of inflaming public opinion? Because that's how you get ratings, is you inflame public opinion, and the post media, which has um, you know, we don't know what its relationship is with the, with the uh, oil and gas industry, but I do point out that post media that made a huge business out of this foreign funding so-called business is U.S. controlled. And it's out there defending a largely foreign, contr- substantially foreign owned and controlled industry from relatively very, very small um relatively small interests. These foundations, they sound like they're big, but they're tiny relative to uh, relative to the scale of the industry they're up against. But I would go further and I would point at the Harper, Stephen Harper government and to Jason Kenney, whose people, uh, staff people, like I believe it's Jamie Allerton and Alakan Velshi, who started Ethical Oil, which has now curiously 
disappeared from the internet. It's all gone, but they were flame throwing this stuff um, for years and they helped feed this, this media narrative. So Vivian Krause without Jason Kenney, without Stephen Harper, without uh, what appears to have been a completely orchestrated campaign back in 2012 to start the CRA auditing process, these hearings that she would go and appear to, without them and without post media and without talk radio, Vivian Krause would be a blogger. There's, there's a bit of a parallel there with, with Cotter, isn't there, um, in terms of this manufactured outrage from the uh, right-wing media? Hmm. Well, I think that I see Cotter's... I mean, it's a lot of the same people, right? And it's a lot of the same people, but I see Cotter slightly differently because that all happened in the kind of fog of, of the uh, 9-11 attacks. And, you know... The, I would say the public was really traumatized by that. Canadians were traumatized by it. And then along came Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all of this other kind of stuff that was going on. So, I mean, we were already kind of on edge and ready to be very concerned about that story. This, this, this was, a, I think that there were organized forces, um, both on the industry side and government side to, to really, uh, blow this up into a, a big story. The piece that you wrote this last couple of weeks, this uh, sort of opening up about the communication that you had with Steve Allen, I, there's a lot about that piece that really intrigued me, but I guess like as a journalist, um, you know, you do some research and you'd be as a lawyer and a journalist, research is like among your life, you know, um, but it felt like reading it that, just the simple fact that these people were contacting you about something that they were in, like this inquiry was tasked with doing all this. And then they were coming to you and being like, how did you know all this stuff? And it felt like you were like, it was almost like a red flag to you that they were asking you about information that was pretty easily accessible for them if they wanted to. Well, it's, it's interesting because so my read on Steve Allen, and I do not know this man, I've only seen what's, what's happened in the media, but we did have a long conversation that was really early and really preliminary. And it was very much about, uh, and I think it, it was good faith on both sides at, at the beginning. I genuinely thought, and, and I think maybe this might be why he's in such a pickle now, was that he was hoping to kind of find a way to calm the waters and, and uh, to do something that was fair. That was my impression in my first, in my, our, our long conversation. And we covered a lot of territory and personal stuff. And um, it was really about, well, what's the lay of the land and who are the who are the the not so much the influencers but who are the people who know things so for instance i know of individuals in the alberta oil and gas sector um, that that could be trusted to give sort of the straight goods about what they know and i was alerting him to people that i thought it would be important for him to talk to just to get a little bit 
uh, broader picture than what you know had been all over the headlines and so on. That was the nature of the conversation. And then we, it was it was subsequent to that that he uh, wanted to look more closely at at my research and that he sent his his team um, out to to Vancouver to meet with me. Um, and that was at that point I was. Um, more anxious and more concerned because I, you know, at this point we were still all off the record and I was, all I wanted to do was to say, look, if you want to get this data, this is where I got it. These are my sources. You can go and do this work yourself, but I'm not going to give you everything that, you know, all the background work that I did. And we, uh, sorry, go ahead, Jeremy. Oh, I, I just wanted to ask. So you went public with this. That wasn't your intention. What happened? What, what, what made you decide to uh, write so, that column in the Observer? So Martin Olshinsky, as people may know, who's a law professor at the University of Calgary, um, uh, he had actually, um, so when the Allen inquiry as it began to proceed, it, it commissioned um, works which were really extended op-eds, largely um, from the industry side, three of them, uh, I believe three. And um, um, Martin Olshinsky wanted my research, my piece to be, um, uh, for the National Observer to be included for commentary by um, inquiry participants, him being one, there are others, obviously. And um, his, that application to have my work included in the inquiries uh, considerations was denied by Steve Allen. And in denying it, Allen said that he had communicated with me now, all our communications had been off the record. So as soon as he did that, I felt, well, as a journalist, even though I'm an uh, opinion columnist, not a reporter, but being part of the journalism world, I felt that I should clarify, well, this is actually, these are the circumstances and this is, this is how it happened. Because it's, it's easy to have, your, to have your credibility affected by the suggestion that you're how you're you're taking quiet behind the scenes meetings with people no i think you know we i think we all at this point and i think most of the listeners and really most anybody is starting to be pretty aware that this there's a whole lot of bunk involved in this uh, you talked about i think you you wrote about a while back about the terms of reference being changed so that it's now it's not like go find this it's like if there is any but is this, I mean, every other panel or inquiry that they've ever had, we always talk about how like the, they start with the solution and then they form an inquiry to go out and give them the solution. Has Steve Allen essentially just been told you're going to find, like, don't come back until you find this particular answer and he can't find that answer and that's the pickle? Well, he, I mean, it, what's bizarre is that he hasn't even looked for the answer. He hasn't talked to any of the organ, the impugned organizations. How can you have an inquiry where you don't inquire into anything? <laughs> I mean, um, 
you know, Tides has not been contact, Tides Canada has not been contacted, none of the, and as far as I know, I was talking to one other person that I know has spoken with Steve Allen uh, the other day, and both of us were saying that as far as we know, we are the only two people that have spoken to him. Is that Donna from, Kennedy Glantz? No. Because she spoke to him apparently too, yeah. right? Because I guess she's come out recently saying like, but she spoke to him in a, as a confiding type of thing, not as part of right, well, right, here's, right. Your, here's some of the factual I see, I see. issues. Because it sounds like it sounds like he's not getting a lot of sleep these days. But then you just say he's not even trying. So like, what is he doing? Is he in Palm Springs just hanging out? Like, what is he doing if he's not actually inquiring? He, he, <laughs> he might be hiding under the furniture somewhere. I mean, I think that this <laughs> poor guy. I actually feel for this guy because I've talked to him and I really feel like his first instinct is to try and be a good guy here. And this is what caught him into so much trouble because this is an impossible task. As we know, the Canadian government has already spent $13.5 million doing charity audits that cost all of those charities, God knows, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars to defend. And, um, and then now this, but uh, just in terms of comparison, like how, what is an inquiry supposed to do? I would point to the Cullen Commission that's going on in British Columbia right now that started almost exactly the same time as the Allen inquiry. And Austin Cullen has heard and uh, has broadcast simultaneously on the internet and has, has um, transcribed and it's all publicly available uh, 200 witnesses, over a thousand documents, 30 rulings, um, just massive, massive amount of material. And as far as Alan's going, it's like nothing. But we knew this right from the beginning. I mean, this is not a job you give to even a forensic accountant, although he, I really think he was more an insolvency and bankruptcy accountant more than a forensic accountant, Steve Allen was. You give this to an experienced trial lawyer or or judge because this is there are such um, extreme issues that are involved. So I think he was a terrible choice in the first place, unless the expectation was that he was just going to deliver the goods that Jason Kenney wanted, which I think is pretty obvious what he wanted. But he's he's got there's no way out. He has no way out. He can't deliver um, a report that. Uh, he hasn't started <laughs> that uh, for an inquiry that hasn't started he cannot deliver a report that in any way um corroborates any of the accusations or the claims that are being that are being made because he hasn't done the inquiry he hasn't done the inquiry so god only knows what he's going to come up with but there's going to be no credible report that's going to come out of this in any way shape or form am i being overly cynical when I suggest there may, may be a uh, fiduciary incentive to just keep this ball rolling. May, um, may, I'm not saying there is. Yeah, uh, you know. Don't sue uh, us. Not the uh, month. Yeah, I, I mean, the, it's certainly an open question and it's, and it's worth asking. I think the people in the war room are the ones who are making uh, making out like bandits. I mean, the, the whole thing of giving a contract to Denton's where Alan had had an office, everybody talks about his son 
uh, being a partner at Denton's. Apparently, he's, I think he's moved on now. But actually, I think that Alan himself had a much closer link to Denton's because he had office space there um, uh, when he was appointed. So, I mean, he emailed me from a I was going to say, didn't he contact account. you with a signature? Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and with a live link that now goes nowhere, but it did at one time go to somewhere in the Denton's in the Denton's website. I mean, the whole thing is. I mean, sure. Sandy, he sounds like an on the level guy. I can see why you would think that. Like he really wants to find the right answer. <laughs> well, he may have just been doing. He might have been taking me in, you know. I, but. The, I, I mean, I don't know what this guy is trying to do, but I. At, what's the extension to now? Is it July? august july, july 30th is you july know, 30th friday okay. which is a friday uh in the in the dead of in the dead of summer is when he's going to hand they supposedly hand that thing in that so he right. has he has two months to start and finish <laughs> yeah right. it sounds like a kid that just doesn't want to get his like the dog that ate my homework yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. that report done that's worth like 30 percent of your mark and you but the teacher just kind of really likes 100%. you your sister did really good in his class two years ago so he doesn't want to see you fail and keeps the giving dog you ate, like a, <laughs> the dog ate my inquiry <laughs> is it conceivable at all to imagine him asking for another extension in july because i wouldn't have thought that he could have possibly asked for this one after the last one before this included also can we have more money <laughs> Well, here's the question. Did he ask or was he told, to you know, this is the, this is kind of what Donna Kennedy glands is alluding to. And it's making me suspicious that all of these requests for these so-called requests for extensions are actually the government kicking the ball down the road because they've got an, in, they've got an inquiry commissioner who's not delivering what they want. That's a, like that, through, now I want to do a whole other hour. <laughs> so that just opened up a whole like other can of worms I want to talk about. Go ahead, uh, Jeremy. Well, Sandy, I, I know we're running low on time, but I did want to ask you because you've done all this work, um, you know, I guess defending uh, environmental charities um, in the face of this government onslaught against them. Now you also support TMX, right? And I found that uh, somewhat surprising, and we don't have time to, you know, get into a debate, but about that. But um, why is more fossil fuel? And if I'm misrepresenting your position, mm -hmm. tell me what it actually is. But why is more fossil fuel infrastructure uh, necessary in 2021? Well, you know, gosh, when did I when did I come out in favor of TMX? Maybe two years ago, and you know things have changed so much. I'm not sure today that I would have the same um, opinion because the, the world is changing incredibly fast. What I was concerned about wasn't so much um, more oil and gas. Uh, I, I wanted to see Albertans be able to get a world price. That seemed to me to be um, a, fa a fair thing, especially because um, it's, you know, if the increase in oil demand, if it's not fulfilled by Alberta, it will be, you know, Vivian Cross is right about this, that, that, you know, it will, it will be Nigeria, it will be other sources that, that will, 
provide that. The solution, the climate solution has to come from us totally revamping our infrastructure on the innovation and electricity electrical side, electrification, building, you know, building materials, sustainable. It's going to be, in my opinion, it's going to be on that side. And I, I fully uh, doff my cap to other much better informed people who are going to disagree with that. I just agreed in principle that Albertans should be able to access the world price of oil. What do you make of the fact that like these, the big argument now from this, the conservatives that are in opposition governments or, you know, the UCP coming in after the NDP, you know, destroyed Alberta. They talk about all this, like, why do we buy unethical oil and we should be buying? What do you make of the fact that like, aren't these people that say this part of some of the people that sort of laid the foundation for the fact that we don't buy are like we don't use our own oil like isn't like saudi arabian oil like something that's been set up over the course of multiple governments governments over time like it feels like it's not something that we just decided in the last 10 years that we should buy oil from elsewhere well this whole i don't i don't i'm not an oil industry expert so i don't know enough about this except i know an opportunist when i see one and this whole ethical oil argument is sheer um political flim flammery it's 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 not genuine at all they've just come up with this as an as an argument and since when have capitalists died in the wool capitalists decided that ethics were really important in anything you know they just it, it's it's the, it's the it's the law of the jungle in capitalism is the you know the the strongest the strongest wins that's the rule so your job is to be stronger so i it's it's just it's so um uh, i think it's kind of charming and and adorable <laughs> great word. for the for the um for all of these oil and gas um big wigs to suddenly find their consciences about ethics yeah well well and also saudi arabia until uh very recently uh was an investor in tar sands yes i i think that i think that's right well i, I mean the whole the whole thing is so entirely bogus because the 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 oil sand, you know, and it's funny because I grew up in Alberta and we called it the tar sands when I was growing up. It was the Athabasca tar sands. It's a we swear all, word now, Sandy. We all, we all went on field trips yeah, and, we had, we, and we got like little bags of, of like bitumen that was called, no, the, here's your here's your little thing of, of, of tar sands and with the actual Athabasca tar sands label on it. So it's always hard for me to say oil sands, but out of politeness, I do have kind of given over i don't know why but tar I, sands is like legitimately worse than a racial slur in alberta like yeah. you're gonna get more shit walking around saying tar sands than you would saying it was i called i called the tar sands to take a stand um yeah. in favor of free speech and against cancel culture yeah. But yeah. Sandy's well, right though. She does it because that's it wasn't always a swear word. It yeah. used to be. We used and to be proud accurate. of the tar sense. We used to be proud of the tar sense. I'm that's how old I am, is that <sighs> we were proud of the proud to call them the Athabasca tar sense. This is a fabulous, wonderful thing. It was good. It was 
It was to 70s Alberta, like the fracking revolution in Texas. Well, my, I'll, we're going to let you out of here right away. And we'll, I'll, I'll give Jeremy a chance for another question too. But I got one more and it isn't to officially tell you, tell us how old you are because you've tried to date yourself all day here. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I wanted to ask you as, as far as the inquiry is concerned, um, I guess, what, what would your opinion be on what is their end game here? Because if it's not, if it's not trying to find uh, the anti-Alberta faction of the world, what is it? Is it just to keep the narrative going? Do they actually think that there's something, is there actually something out there to find that they just haven't looked for yet? Like, what do you think is going on? There's nothing to find. This thing has been a, this, this has been a shell game from the get-go, right from the beginning. This has all been a PR exercise to discredit the environmental movement. And by the way, it's not just the environmental movement, but, the con but conservative governments and autocratic governments around the world everywhere have been cracking down on human rights and social justice and environmental activists everywhere and everywhere that they've done it. They have singled out the foreign funding as that's their that's their big thing that they use to discredit um, to discredit these activists, and it's gone on in Brazil where Bolsonaro was saying that it was the environmentalists that set the fires in the rainforests. It goes on in India where Modi has cracked down um, and and put environmentalists and human rights people on no-fly lists as if they're suspected terrorists. Russia is doing it. It's happening in autocratic regimes around the world. This is all just part of a much bigger pattern. And um, uh, we have to stick up for nonprofits' ability to uh, advocate uh, for, for the public good. Because we know now, well, you know, if, we, if you could pretend 15 years ago that you didn't know about climate change, you can't pretend that now. They were right all along, the environmentalists. 100%. Jeremy, you got any final questions that could possibly get her to top that? Yeah, just to end on a lighter <laughs> note, um, talking about ethical oil, of course, one of the key people behind it um, is a guy by the name of Ezra Levant, who wrote a book titled that. Now, he also uh, called you, Sandy, a communist activist. And I'm just wondering, was, was there a time in your life where you were a communist, like when you were younger? I wish. <laughs> Me too. No, 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 there wasn't. But uh, Ezra and I go back. So. Oh, do you know him personally? Well, no, but we've had we've we've had. Uh, You've exchanged. We've 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 exchanged. I'm blocked by Rebel Media, but uh, yeah. Hey, me I too. Mean, yeah, there, there was, it really is uh, a major badge of honor. Yeah, there was the time that that he doxed me and 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 was flame throwing all through the American right wing, all of those figures now that are all part of the big MAGA thing, um, over a piece that I did about rebel media. But long long time, a lot of blood under the bridge, put it that way. So, what are you going to do with the rest of your Vancouver day today? Sun is shining. Right, we finally got a little sun down here now too. Yeah. It was been raining the last week, so pretty well, excited. Nice to. I hope you guys have a good day too. Absolutely. Well, listen, 
I just wanted to thank you so much for being here today and for coming on the show. And uh, I'm going to ask you if you'll uh, come back one day, another time to uh, talk more about things, because I think Jeremy and I both agree that we could talk to you for a really long time about a lot of different things. But uh, we look up to the work that you do. You're really amazing at what you do. Um, and I admire the things that you've done. And I just appreciate you being here. Well, thank you so much. And I'll let me just close by saying, I hope that we all take a moment to pause and think about those graves at, the, at that residential school and the, and the graves that are all around this country. We should be thinking about that. 100%. Yeah, that, I can't think of a better way to end the episode. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sandy. Really. Thanks, and guys. Uh, chat, we'll chat again soon. Okay. It is the time in our show, you guys, where we thank those who go above and beyond uh, with anything we could ever hope for. Uh, to Chris Derwald, to Big, uh, to Dave Von Miller, to <laughs> Nicola D. Nicola. I almost said Big Red Machine again, but we're giving them a break. But anyways, uh, you guys, thank you so much for the support. To everyone else who listens and supports, we really appreciate it. Um, share this episode, guys. Uh, I'm, I'm sure... Uh, there's lots that uh, in here that needs to get heard. So anyway, appreciate you being here. We'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.